This week is Parshat Chukat. And uh, Parshat Chukat, truth to tell, is a small Parsha, which is absolutely power-packed. There are so many great things in it. Obviously, the beginning of it is the whole issue of the Paraduman. There's a lot to talk about in the context of the Paraduman, especially to talk about how much we don't really understand about it. One salient point I just want to make about Paraduma. Paraduma is, so we say, proof positive that Sefer Bami Bar is more of an anthology than a narrative, meaning that the laws that are mentioned in Sefer Bami Bar are not given at the time that they're presented in the sequence in the text. And uh, Paraduma is a clear proof for that because Paraduma introduces not only the method for becoming Tahor, when you're Tumat Mate, but also the very fact of Tumat Mate and the rules of Tumat Mate. And Tumat Mate is something that not only shows up earlier in Sefer Mami Bar in the story of the uh, Pesach Sheni and uh, and everything that um, the people were Tumat the Nefesh Adam, uh, but it also shows up um, even in the context of Nadav and Avihu. So clearly there were laws of Tumat Mate and a method for becoming Tahor from that uh, beforehand. So it's Paraduma. Well, after Paraduma, we have the piece that we're going to look at here, which is the death of Miriam, the thirst, the charge to Moshe regarding the rock, and then what Moshe and Aaron do, and then the result of that. Following that, we have uh, B'nai Yisrael wandering in the Midbar and trying to enter the land through different nations that refuse their entry, Adam and Moab. And then there is the death of Aaron and passing the torch to the next generation uh, to Elazar, who comes down with Moshe wearing the Bigdei Kuna. And then there's the war with Sichon. And in the middle of that is Shirat Be'er. And in the middle of that entire series, there is a mention of Chormah, which leads to the problem that the Ramban raises about well, wasn't Chorma only renamed Chorma from Tzfat in Sefer Shoftim? <coughs> and the Shirat Be'er brings up a topic that we've talked about a number of years ago, which is Rabbi Yura Hasid and his commentary on the Torah and his claim about Shirat Be'er. Lots of great stuff in Parshat Chukat. And for a small parsha, it is power-packed. However, I want to go back to the real second topic in Parshat Chukat, which is the act of Moshe and Aharon and the resultant uh, decree that they may not lead the people into the land. And in the past, we've looked at the parsha itself and tried to figure out what it is that Moshe did wrong, and also to uh, understand the association of the death of Miriam and her being buried there with the entire complaint. Uh, but I want to go in a slightly different direction, actually a very different, a very large different direction uh, in today's shiur, um, and that is really the result of a conversation that I had, a five-minute conversation I had over this past Shabbat with my dear friend, Rob David Foreman, uh, in New York, where I just raised a thought, he raised another thought, and then the result is this. Um, and that is that, as, as should be obvious to, to a lot of people, and it is to a lot of commentators, Chet Moshe seems to be so trivial and so difficult to pinpoint relative to the consequence that it becomes difficult to really match the two up. And it becomes difficult also for another reason, because as we'll see a little later in the Mekorot, Moshe Rabbeinu himself says that the reason he's not going into the land is not because of this event, but because of evidently what we call Chet HaMeraglim. Chet HaMeraglim, by the way, 
is a misnomer on two levels. First of all, the 12 scouts who were sent were never called Miraglim in the narrative itself. They're only referenced that way, uh, and only by the verb Vayiraglu uh, in in the retell and Sefer Dvarim. And second of all, it wasn't the sin of those 12 people, or however many they were, 10 of them, that was the decree. The decree was because of the people's reaction to their sin of uh, besmirching the land and and hysterically uh, describing uh, a land that eats its inhabitants, etc. But we'll call it just for convention. Uh, but it's still difficult to associate Chetam Raglim with, uh, as being, uh, sorry, it's difficult to associate the Chet Meimeriva being the direct re- um, uh, cause for Moshe's, for the decree against Moshe not coming to the land, when Moshe himself says, it seems to be what we call Chetam Raglim. So let's try to see what's going on. Here's the story, we know the story, and the end of the story is, Hashem says to Moshe, Now, what does that mean? It means, since you did not sanctify me, you did not trust me to sanctify me in the eyes of B'nai Yisrael. Therefore, you will not bring the people into the land. Now, part of the problem here is, where do we find Lohem Mantembi Lahakti Sheni Lehnebene Israel? Where do we see that in Moshe and Aaron's actions? If it's that Moshe was really supposed to talk to the rock, which I don't think is Pshat, and then he hit the rock, it's still difficult. Where's the Lohem Mantembi? Well, you didn't believe I could bring water out of a rock by speaking to it? Uh, why would you think I could bring water out of a rock by hitting it? It's still a miraculous thing. So that line of the cause is difficult. The consequences, therefore you will not bring them into the land. Okay. But I'd like to work this backwards. Instead of looking at Moshe's actions, and then there is a consequence, which is a decree not to leave the people in the land, I try to figure out the two. I'd like to go backwards by looking at Moshe's actually not going into the land, and see if we can see in the words used there, which shows up three or really four different times later in Chumash, maybe a, 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 a glimmer of an idea about why it was that he was not allowed to come into the land. So you'll notice, the first time that it comes up as a, as a direct command is in Parshat Pinchas. We're now at the end of 40 years, or towards the end of 40 years, and we are on the border of Eretz Yisrael, the whole story with Balak and Bilam is over. Uh, and um, Moshe is now told the following. This is just after the Benot Slofchad interaction, at least sequentially in the text. Go up to the mountain and see the land. You see the land. You'll be gathered to your people, meaning you're not going into the land. All right, and then the association with Meimariva in Parshat Vatchanan, which begins Vatchanan El Adonai Ba'etahin Lemor. I begged Hashem to please let me come to the land, and the whole uh, take. And then Hasuk Chavav Etaver Adonai Bein Lemanchem. God got angry at me on your account. Well, what does that mean on your account? Velo Shamai like. Don't talk to me about this. Don't bring it up. Silence. Notice what he tells him to do. Go to the top of the mountain. 
Cast your eyes in all four directions. Or and see the land with your eyes. Now this is more explicit than we have in Pinchas. In Pinchas he said just see the land and die. Here it's see the land all four directions and you're not crossing. And charge Yoshua, give him strength, give him courage, because he's the one who's going to take the people across, not you. So this is a more explicit statement. We go to the end of Dvarim, almost the end of Dvarim, and right after Shirat Ta'azinu. And that very day, Hashem says, Go to the top of Harnavo. Or A at Eretz Canaan. Again, see the land from the top of the mountain. See the land that I'm giving them. And you're going to die in that land. And then at the end, you will see the land from the other side. And you're not going into that land. And notice, this is the third time that Moshe has been told, go up and see the land. And in the first, it was implicit. And the other two explicitly told, and you're not crossing over. Right, and then at the very end of the Torah, and then what does Hashem say after He shows Moshe and it's evidently points out to him all the different places? Now this is the land I promised to the Avot. We're going to come back to that. I've shown it to you with your eyes, you've seen it. And you're not going to cross over. So there seems to be an emphasis. There not seriously, there is clearly an emphasis every time that Hashem reminds Moshe, and then finally it happens that Moshe is not coming into the land, that he is to go to the top of the mountain, he is to see the land. In one case, cast his eyes in all four directions. But he's not going to cross over. Kind of a curious thing. So if we take a look at the story of the scouts, which I think it's all anchored there, and you see it again here, right in in Para and Dvarim Aleph at the end of his telling, and we're going to look we're going to look at this in more detail in a minute of the story of the Miraglim. Gam bi tanaf Adonai b'galchem lemor gam Hashem got angry at me, and again, on your behalf, because of you, to tell me I can't cross over there. Yoshua Binun will be the one to cross over there. What's going on? Why is it that Moshe is caught up in, quote-unquote, what's his role in it? What does it have to do with this command of go to the top of the mountain, take a look, see the land, you're not going over? So let's take a look at the core story of the Miraglim. Now, we're not going to look at the whole story because we don't need to. We need to look at the beginning. By the bear on the line, we'll show them more. Now, we have to ask the following question. What did Hashem tell Moshe to do? What did Moshe tell the scouts to do? What did the scouts do? And we're going to find something surprising here. Hashem told Moshe, Shalach lecha anashim. And I'm familiar with the Midrash. I don't really want to send. If you want to send, you could send. But simple take is, send some people. You send them. They should scout out the land. 
Now, at that point, we don't know what Hashem has in mind. I mean, if we stop there, we don't know what scouting means. Scouting might mean a reconnaissance mission. Where you see what the first point of entry is for, for purposes of attack. Or it could be to visit the land and see the entire land and uh, and come back and give a report to the people and say, Zvulun, this is the kind of territory you're going to get. Neftali, you're going to be here. Yehuda, you're going to be there. I don't know that until I get to the second half of the Pasuk. And then it becomes clear. And there are two pieces of this instruction that make it clear that this is not a spy mission. That's why they're not called Miraglim in this parsha, And it's not a reconnaissance mission. Who does Hashem tell Moshe to send? Twelve men, one from each tribe, and they have to be leaders. Now, if you want spies, think about the Haftarah we read in Parshat Shlach. If you want spies, who do you send? You send a couple people, one person, two people, and you send nobodies. People you don't even know their name. People under the radar. You don't send 12 machers. It makes no sense. And nonetheless, that's who Hashem says to send. Now, the next thing we have is we get the names of the 12 guys. And by the way, notice who's missing? Levi. Why is Levi missing? So it makes it pretty clear that this is a scouting mission of a representative of each tribe that's going to inherit land, and they'll come back and give a report. This is the land that we're inheriting, but it looks like it's beautiful, it's great, right, etc. What happens? Now remember, we know what Hashem told Moshe, we know what Moshe told them, we know what they did, but they don't know what Hashem told Moshe, they know what Moshe tells them. So he sends them Latur Teretz Kanan. But what does he say to them? What does that mean? Aluza Banegev means go up through the Negev. Remember, we're in Kadesh Barnea. To get a sense of where that is, today, look at the border between Egypt and Israel. Go about halfway between Rafiach and Ilat. And from that point, go about 10 kilometers into Egypt. That's Kadesh Barnea. Plus minus. Uh, roughly. So the idea is go up through the Negev, va'alitem et hahar, and go up the mountain. What mountain is that? Anybody? What mountain would that be? If you're going to go up through the Negev, and then you're going to go up the mountain, what mountain is that? Close. Har Hebron. Think about this. If you're in, in Beersheba and you start going up towards Yerushalayim, what's your, your ascent is up to Har Hebron. Which, by the way, makes a lot of sense. Yerushalayim is a nothing right now. Hebron, on the other hand, is not only a city of significance, but in our history, in our association, it's a tremendously significant city. It is Ir Ha'avot. All right, so now, you guys have been to Hebron. When you are in Har Hebron, you can see a lot. Har Hebron is, actually Chachul itself, but near Har Hebron, is the highest point in the whole range. You can see a lot from there. So now, Ali Temetahar, and then what, is he, what does Moshe tell them to do? Mahi. What does that mean? I'm not even looking about the details of what they're supposed to look at. What are they supposed to do? They're supposed to go up through the Negev, and then they're supposed to go up to the top of Har Hebron. Mahi. Meaning, from that point, look around and see the land. 
Stand up there at that viewpoint and scout out the land and see what you see. Are there fortified cities or are there open cities? Right? Does the land look good or not? And then, Do you see fruit? Do you see stuff growing? Is it desolate? Are there trees there or not? And take some of the fruit of the land. By the way, what's the most famous fruit that they bring back? Is grapes. And of course, the territory around Hebron is rich in vineyards. That's part of the Brachat to Yehuda. We're also told this is the time when grape harvest is beginning, which will explain why the grapes play a central role in what they bring back. Good. So there's a disconnect. Hashem tells Moshe they should go throughout the land. Moshe tells them, go up to Hebron and and scope it out from there and come back. Very different. By the way, how long should this mission have taken according to Moshe's directive? It have taken a week. Not 40 days. In reality, what do they do? They go all the way up to Syria. They scout out the entire land. Which means, oddly enough, they actually did what it is Hashem told Moshe, but not what Moshe told them. Why they did that, unclear. But this will explain some strange things that happened later. Now, Vayaluva Negev, now, by the way, notice, Pasuk Hafav Chapet are not in order. You see it. Vayaluva Yatua Taratmi Bartzina Rechov Lavochamat describes the entire journey. And then Chapet starts the step-by-step. Because Chafalaf is a topic statement. This is what they did over 40 days. Now, let's go in order. Vayaluva Negev, which is exactly what Moshe told them to do, Vayavo Ad Chevron. Now, what's the problem with the grammar here? Vaya'aluva neged, vaya'avo ad chevron. The problem is obvious that it should be vaya'avo ad chevron, right? And so how do we interpret it midrashically? Vaya'avo ad chevron is one of them. One, Kalev. So the famous midrash, Kalev, went lishtatech al kivre'avot. That's part of a larger midrashic tradition, which is very difficult in Pshat, and I'll address it right now. In the part in this passage that we skipped, we hear about the names of the twelve fellows, and the one from Ephraim is named Hoshea bin Nun. And at the end of it, we're told by Ikram Hoshea, Hoshea bin Nun, Yehoshua. What does Rashi quoting the Midrash? What does Rashi say on the spot that he added a yod to Yehoshua's name to Hoshea become Yehoshua? Ya Yoshiachamiatzatmaraguin. God should protect you from the bad counsel of these other guys. Okay, so you have to really ask the question: Why did Moshe send them? And if Moshe knew they were bad guys, why, when they came back, did Moshe have allow everybody to be assembled, have a public meeting? Why didn't he meet with them privately? It's very difficult to to, to say that. So Ashbam says pshat there that uh, that Ya Yoshiachami that, that the Yoshua is not Yoshiachami outside of Raglim, but saying typically, and you find this with Yosef or Daniel, you find it with the other three boys in Daniel, say for Daniel, that when people ascend to a position of royalty, they're given a new name. So Hosea, which is his birth name, and that's where you'll find him within the annals of Shevet Ephraim, when he joined Moshe as his acolyte, he got the name Yehoshua. It's his royal name. All right, so that's just you know who it is. We do the same thing, by the way, with Kalev. 
say, oh, Kalev's one of the heroes, and therefore, by Avod Hebron, Kalev came, and what did he do? He came to to pray for what? To be saved from what the other guys are planning. But again, why would we send guys who we know are planning bad stuff? So the other way to read Vayavod Hebron as Kalev is to say that Kalev went to Yudah because every guy was going to their Nachala. And so Kalev was from Yudah, he went to Hebron. Hebron's the capital of Yudah, that's fine. The only problem is that, what about the other 11? How come Yoshua doesn't go to Shiloh? Right? And so why doesn't each guy go to their own place? So I'd like to suggest something else that goes in a different direction. Vayaluva Negev, Vayavod Hebron. Vayavod Hebron meaning all 12 of them came together, united in purpose. Just like Vayichan Shamison Negarahar, what's the famous Vidrash? Keishachad Balevachad. Now I know this goes against what we're accustomed to thinking because, and it's something that we encounter all the time, we have a, uh, an orientation, a tendency, which is, to take the end of a story and reference it back so that whatever we know about a character at the end of a story, we read as being who they were at the beginning of the story. And so therefore, when we find Lavan to be a treacherous, deceptive guy at the end of the story, we read it back, and therefore the first time we meet Lavan, he's embracing the slave to try to find gold in his mouth instead of embracing him because he's a nice guy. We read it back. And so we do the same thing here, which is to say that these 12 guys were all, the 10 of these guys were louts, they were terrible, they were awful from the very beginning. And of course, no way in the world would we think that there was any unity of purpose. But maybe that's not the case. Maybe they started out and they were really united. And they went to do exactly what Moshe told them, because they're loyal to Moshe. Which is where he told them to go, Rosh Hashar. And who is in Hebron? And we know this. This is not their statement. This is the text. And we know from Yoshua Yeralef who uh, who inhabits the, that mountain area. Giants. So Hebron, on the one hand, is beautiful. On the other hand, it's giants. Which is exactly what the report is later. And now, So now they're separating. Alright, and again, this could just be simply they all went, or they went separately, but they went, and they did what they were told to do, and bring the grapes. Alright, good. And now, the whole thing takes now 40 days. So now, from perspective of what Hashem had directed them to do, they actually did the right thing. They end up going through the whole land. Perspective of what Moshe told them to do, they actually failed the mission. Because instead of going just to Hebron, seeing the land, coming back with a report, and with some fruit, they did spread throughout the land. Which helps explain something else that's very strange. I talked about this uh, two weeks ago from a different perspective, but in, in the aftermath of the hysterical second report of the people, of the ten, or however many there were, and the, the the nation's weeping response and scared response, we have this line that Yoshua and Kalev tore their clothes. And as I spoke about two weeks ago, Kriyat B'Gadim is a sign of contrition throughout Tanakh. It's always a sign of saying, I did something that led to something tragic I'm seeing. 
whether it's a death, whether it's rebellion, whether it's uh, a decree of God, right? Yoshiao does that, Ahab does it. So I suggested, and I, I still believe it's accurate, that Kalev ben Yifunet tore his clothes because he realized that it was his uh, zealous reaction to the first report that led to the hysterical second report that led to the near rebellion. And he said, I, I played a role in that. And it, it takes responsibility. I think Yoshua also recognizes that because he did not abide by Moshe's instructions and went throughout the land, that's what led to this entire piece. Because they were out for a couple of days. They didn't come back with, okay, they're giants, but here's a really nice place. We saw the land. Instead, it's a much longer journey. And by the way, we see that later on because how does Hashem punish B'nai Israel? The final punishment after the compromise? Yom Lashana, Yom Lashana. He punishes them for violating Moshe's directive, even though it wasn't his, which is they went for 40 days. And now the people's rea- hysterical reaction is they're going to have to wander for 40 years. So it hadn't been a week, so it would have been seven years in that way. So there's a conundrum here that the scouts violated Moshe's directive. The scouts are punished for that. The people are punished for that in kind because of the way they react to it. However, Moshe also didn't do the right thing because Moshe did not give the directive the way that Hashem told him. And so now what happens? First of all, why was Hashem's directive Shlach Lacha at that point? So Shlach Lacha echoes for us Lech Lacha. As when Shlach Lacha should have been the closing parentheses to the opening parentheses of Lech Lacha. Our journey to Eretz Yisrael begins with the two words Lech Lacha. Our final arrival back home should have begun with Shlach Lacha. And how does and when our, our Avram comes in the land, what does Hashem tell him to do? Here we go. Where you're standing, look all around. Which is exactly what Moshe says in Vatchanan. Hashem told me to look in all four directions. Hashem told Avram, go to that mountain and look in all four directions. This is in Hebron, actually. And now, uh, or this is in Hare Yuda. But that's not enough, because what does Hashem then tell him to do? You've seen it, now walk it. What did Hashem want these 12 guys to do? He wanted them to re-experience Abraham. To come, look, and then walk it. Go everywhere through the land and come back. What was Moshe's concern? Moshe's concern was if they do that, then they're not going to be loyal to the mission. In other words, Moshe, lo And therefore, That's what's hinted to in Mevrivan, this week's parasha. And therefore, what we see, and by the way, Moshe himself alludes to it. When he retells the story before he dies, and when he tells it to the new generation, he tells the story of the Meraglim, and here they're sort of called Meraglim. And then in it, he says, and by the way, throughout the narrative, the land is consistently, not just the land I'm giving you, the land I promise to you, Avot, because it all comes back to Avram. He will see it. 
because he followed the way Hashem said it, meaning the way that Moshe told him. But God got angry. What's Biglochem mean? Because I didn't do the right mission towards you. I was supposed to follow what Hashem said and send them throughout the land. I'm the one who confused it. I'm the one who gave it differently, who perhaps was concerned the Venezuela would not be up to the task, and therefore I shortened the mission. It didn't work. And so therefore what Hashem said, Gamatalot Rosham. Now, let's see how it works. What is it that Moshe actually told him to do? He said, go up to the top of the mountain and see the land. Don't go there. See the land. Come back with a report. What does Hashem tell him every time where he says, you're not going into the land? Go to the top of the mountain, see the land. You can't go there. Go to the top of the mountain, look in all four directions. You're not going in. As if to say to him, I'm taking you to where you were sending them. And that was really the chait. And that explains the language in here and in our story, in our parsha, of Yan Lohemantem B, Lakdisheni La'enei B'nei Yisrael. You understand the illusion in La'enei B'nei Yisrael. Because you told them, go oh, stand up and just look and don't touch. Just look and don't go. What I wanted them to do was to go and to walk around and really reenact Abraham's journey to the land so that they'd be successful in coming in. And so therefore, each side did things wrong. The scouts were in violation because they didn't follow Moshe's orders. And Yoshua also did not follow Moshe's orders, and therefore Yoshua has to tear his clothes because he realizes. But because he realizes it, because he has contrition and is aware that he did not do what he should he, what he should have done, therefore he's spared and he's able to stay in the land and, and stay alive and come into the land. Kalev, we don't know if he goes throughout the land. We know he goes, we don't know about the Hebron part, but he might have gone with them, but he had perhaps another angle of contrition because of the way he spoke. So hopefully we've gotten a, another perspective on understanding what Chet Moshe is. And to quote the Abravanel, he says that for both Moshe and Aharon, who actually did things far more grievous than the rock and the stick. Moshe, the Meraglim, and Aharon, the Cheta Egel, with the Rabbarvanel here in Dvarim, Dvarim, says, but the, what the Torah does is it uses something milder to protect the reputations, uh, and, and assigns it to the relatively trivial, relatively trivial Cheta of Memriva, which we read about in this week's parasha. Something to think about. Uh, when we read about Chet Moshe, just as a final note, Shadal, in his commentary on Chet Moshe, says there have been lots of different approaches to explain what Moshe did wrong. Rashi, he hit the rock. Ibn Ezra, he hit it twice. Rambam, he spoke angrily, etc. Everybody's got a different take. Says, I've recorded at least 13 different approaches to what Moshe did wrong. And I just really, I have another idea, he said, but I don't want to add to Moshe's rap sheet, so I'm not I'm going to be silent. Um, I, in great respect for that, that approach, nonetheless, the avenues of Parshanut are not closed. And I believe that perhaps there's something worth exploring. And I really am interested in hearing from anybody who, uh, who hears this, uh, you know, if you have reactions or you find uh, difficulties with the take, uh, because, uh, you know, I know it's something new. In any case, uh, everybody should have a wonderful Shabbat and, uh, and enjoy Parshat Chukat, and I think Chutzlar catches up with you next week. So uh, next week we'll do Balak, and Balak will be doing it for, for all communities.